right. Well, hey, good morning, Calvary. Thank you uh, for being here and coming out on a uh, dreary day and also a day that's a holiday weekend, so we're excited for what God has for us. Um, I'm going to add four, well, I'll add two minutes on with this that wasn't planned, but man, uh, that song gets me. Um, And I mean, woo, Uh, it just gets me, right? And so... um, so, um, so, here's the deal. I mean, to have Alyssa and Cole, who grew up here, right? Um, and it's not that it's just my son. That's not what it, I mean. Even, even less, right? Uh, so we've had the privilege of watching these kids grow up as part of our church body. And now they're serving our church body. Um, and that is the faithfulness of God uh, and the goodness of God. And... Um, and I'm not going to cry all day because <laughs> I've done so much crying. It's like, um, but, and I'm going to say this quick. Right? If you're visiting, I apologize. This is the weirdest thing, non-secret church, non-visitor friendly moment. But, but, so if you're visiting, uh, man, God's called us to a new season that we're really excited about and feel peace about, um, but obviously really sad about leaving this place. And as I was singing that, and I'm just going to say it quick so I'm not going to call it in this, but man, the past 10 years of Calvary with you guys have been the goodness of God. Um, and I mean that. So uh, it's been a privilege, and we're grateful for his faithfulness and we're grateful that, like we sang, man, the faithfulness of God does not end, right? And so he is going to continue to be faithful to this body in amazing, rich ways. Um, and so that'll be great. And so we have uh, an opportunity now to celebrate what he's doing in our body and to, to thank a bunch of uh, ladies who put on an amazing event yesterday. If you didn't know, wow, if you didn't know this, it was Christmas in July. And so we had 40-plus women who were here I mean, I, get, I don't know, were you singing Christmas carol? Nobody came to my house to Christmas carol. I don't know what that But man, a bunch of ladies were here, uh, and what we're trying to do here is build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love. So a great chance for a bunch of ladies to be together uh, as a body. And like we said, as a body, what we want to do is not just hang out on these blue chairs and make it all about us. Uh, we want to just be just as intentional and in making sure it's about people who don't yet know Jesus or who are looking for hope, who, who are hoping to experience the goodness of God. And so we always want to be trying to do things as a body, personally and collectively, to reach and impact others with God's love and truth. And so we have an amazing uh, opportunity to do that, like we've done for decades, through our Summer Spectacular, where we will have hundreds upon hundreds, and that is not Baptistic exaggeration, uh, hundreds and hundreds of kids, man, from the community, from neighboring towns, running and packing in this place in a couple of weeks where they're going to be cared for, they're going to be shown Jesus' love, and they're going to hear about Jesus' love. And so we still have um, opportunities for some kids to come to that, and so a really easy thing for you to do is to do what we do. And when you see neighbors who have little kids say, hey, man, does your kid have a thing to do in a couple weeks? Because our church is doing this amazing summer camp. And I'm just telling you, a free summer camp for kids, like parents are all about that. So it's an easy way for you to try to take a step um, to personally reach and impact somebody with God's love and truth. And who knows the seeds that God may plant. We have people who are part of our church body now because their kid came to Summer Spectacular. There are stories of people who are Christians now because they came to Summer Spectacular. And God can have you have a part in stories like that. And so uh, there's still spaces. encourage you to reach out. And then at the end of the service... We're going to pray for a bunch of people who are going out to reach and impact others with God's love and truth uh, in a week. So 
All right, so there's the announcement time. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into what God has for us in his sermon this morning. So I'd ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful uh, that you, you do not change like we sang, and you are the same yesterday, today, and you tell us uh, tomorrow. And so we're thankful in so many of our lives and in all of our lives, we can look back over your faithfulness and your goodness to us, and so many times we just take that for granted. Um, but thank you for moments like uh, I had this morning and some of us had this morning, just to pause and reflect and to uh, give thanks to you for your goodness and your faithfulness. And thank you for that other song we sang, Father, where we know we can trust you and we can depend upon you. And so... Uh, be with Summer Spectacular, <clears throat> and I pray that already you might plant some seeds in some of our hearts about kids we can invite and families we can invite, and that there may be a difference made for eternity. And uh, please help us now as we open up your word, Father, that um, you have a reason for us being here. You have a reason for the people who are online. You won't waste this moment. And so I pray that you might be honored and glorified by what we do here. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, one quick other housekeeping thing, uh, some of you have been part of it, but for the past couple of weeks we spent after this hour uh, gathered together in this room to think about the issue of gender dysphoria, and I've really enjoyed it and benefited from it, and uh, man, just a bunch of you have said you've enjoyed it. So we're going to be wrapping that up this week, and so um, before you run to Costco to get your ribs, if you want to stick around and hear about an important issue we got going on, we'd love for you to... Um, think about and be with us as part of that conversation. So today, you probably know what we're doing. What do you think we're studying in our book of, of the Bible today? What do you think we're studying? No, we're studying Zechariah. No, we're not. Uh, yeah, we're in our Revelation series. Again, if you're visiting, if you're newer, we kicked this off almost a year ago. And what we do at Calvary is we open up a book of the Bible and we walk through a paragraph through paragraph, and we're doing that uh, in our series of Revelation. And I've loved studying this, and if you're like me, as we've opened up the text and as we've come to different things, there's been some weeks that it's just been uh, some unfamiliar things, some things that we've maybe never read about, some things that we've never heard about. And so in our time together over these months, we've covered some unfamiliar things. But like we said when we first kicked this off is in the book of Revelation, there are a handful of things that are very familiar, even for people who don't come to church, even for people who've never cracked open the Bible. There's some things out of Revelation that have woven their way into our culture, um, things like the Antichrist, uh, like I shared my little DMV story, when the people did not want the license plate with 666 on it. Uh, those numbers have made their way. There's a familiarity. People are familiar with seven horsemen of the apocalypse. And amidst all the unfamiliar, unknown things, there are some things that have woven their way. And another thing we're going to talk about today, because even for people who've never studied Revelation or even for people who have never cracked open the Bible, people are probably familiar with the idea, the event, the word of the battle of Armageddon, right? Armageddon, an amazing movie from the mid-90s, 2000s maybe? Did you all see the movie Armageddon? A meteor is crashing to earth, right? And so we send people up and there's that amazing song and they have to blow up the meteor and they blow themselves up in the process and I'm sobbing and the dude's talking to his daughter. Oh, it's a tearjerker. But, right, it, movies have this title in it. And today what we're going to talk about is, okay, what, what is this idea of Armageddon? What is this battle of Armageddon? Um, 
And I'm sure you guys, probably most of you have heard about it uh, from culture, TVs, maybe in the book. But what we're going to think about today is not what that movie says about the phrase Armageddon or whatever, but what does the book say, right? What does uh, God's Word tell us about what it actually is? And what it actually is, as we work through it today, uh, what we'll see, I think, can give us a challenge and can give us some encouragement, some challenges and some encouragement coming from this. So we're going to be in Revelation uh, 19, verses 17 through 21, Revelation 19, verses uh, 17 through 21. And as we study this, we're going to see two different things. We're going to see three questions and three challenges, three questions and three challenges. And so if you got your Bible, if you got your device, if you've memorized the book of Revelation in the original Greek, whatever you've done of those options, uh, let me, I'd invite you to open it up, Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 through 21, and I'm just going to read it, and then we'll talk a little bit about it this morning, all right? So here's what it says. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The mouth of him who was sitting on the horse we saw last week refers to Jesus, um, and that's the text, right? And as we've read that, it's, it's descriptive, it's gory, it's violent, and there's kind of two extremes about how to interpret this. And so if you open up a bunch of commentaries on Revelation, if you to hear sermons on Revelation, even for those who are taking our futurist perspective, right? We're taking the perspective that this is things that have yet to come in the future, and even within that camp, there's kind of two different ways that you would see people understand this. One group of people are like, every single word you need to take literally. And so there will actually be birds that are eating kings and people who follow kings, and you got to take it literally. There's another group that's way over here, who are like, no, it is, you need to take it symbolically, okay? So it is, it is symbolic language, talking about some sort of conflict, but that could be a spiritual conflict probably. It's not really a real actual battle with knives and swords and stuff, but it's spiritual. And, and those are kind of the two extremes of how we come at this and people interpret it. And there clearly is some sort of symbolic language over um, on this side because it talks about Jesus having a sword come out of his mouth with which he slays people. And based on how we've read Revelation before, I don't think that actually means that Jesus is like clenching a sword between his teeth and like whoosh, whoosh, right? So there is some symbolism to it, but it also does seem that it is describing some sort of actual conflict. That, that there is some description of some sort of actual battle and conflict and war taking place that is being described with symbolic language, but we don't need to take it all literally, but we don't want to just spiritualize it and say it's just a fight between metaphorically good and bad, because it does seem that there's actual conflict involved here. 
But, but all of that, and as we read it, it kind of brings us to the first question this morning. And the first question this morning is this, well, why does this even matter? Like we just read, I don't know, what, five or six verses in Revelation, and why does it matter? Why do, did God inspire this? Why do we need to know this? And maybe when we sit here uh, a couple days before July 4th in 2023, we ask that question, like, well, this is kind of unique language, but I don't really know if it has anything to do with me. And as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we need to remember, we're not the original audience who, to whom this was given. This letter and this series of letters was not originally given to Christians in 2023. The first group of people to whom this was written, as we've talked about a few, you know, months and months and months ago, were a group of Christians in eight, about the mid-90s A.D. So the mid-90s A.D., there were a group of Christians who were the first audience and recipients of this letter and letters that are the book of Revelation and, and it mattered because of what, in part, they were going through. Many of those people who would have been in a room like this, what would have happened is we saw that there were letters of seven churches, which now were all combined in one big letter. And somebody would have rolled up in here yesterday, and they would have handed that, this letter to me. And I would have gotten up here this morning, and I would have said, hey, here's a letter that's being passed around churches that was written by John, and here's what he wants us to know through the Holy Spirit. And I would have then read to you this, these words. And the people who would have been sitting on those blue chairs in A.D. 90s, right, like we've talked about, their life was hard. And they were going through differing degrees of persecutions depending on the regions in which they were living or coming from, man, some of them were facing torture. And some of them <clears throat> at that part in history would have been facing death and murder because of their faith. And depending on the exact timing of this letter, either it had already happened or it was just about to happen that the Roman government was about to issue this decree that being Christian was illegal. And if you were caught being a Christian, if you were caught worshiping Jesus, there were all sorts of punishments which ranged from imprisonment, losing your stuff, or losing your life. And as the years continued, the punishment was losing your life. And centuries and centuries and centuries ago, there were a group of people who were real live people like you and like me, who would have been sitting in this place hearing about somebody a couple of counties away who were Christians who had been killed on Sunday mornings because of their faith. They may have heard rumblings. They may have heard that this law was being passed or had been passed or would be in a few years, making it illegal. And they were in this place where they were powerless in the face of all that. They were powerless. They couldn't stop it. <clears throat> If a Roman guard came to arrest them or to kill them or to drag their wife away, I mean, they could, they could try to scrap a little bit, but man, you're not going to scrap against a Navy SEAL team of Roman soldiers. They couldn't fight it. They couldn't stop it. And so it was a group of Christians who were in this moment who really all they could do was to try to live faithfully in the midst of it. And... If I was to open up something right now and that you'd never heard, 
And if I was to start reading something to you that you had never heard, now remember, you'd never heard it. And if you had never heard it, you, would you know how that ended? No, that's the right answer, right? If I open up a book right now that just got published a minute ago and you did not publish it and I start reading that to you, you're going to be listening to it, but you're going to be like, I don't know how this story ends. I don't know where we're going in this. That's what's happening also to these Christians. They're facing persecution. They're facing hardships. They can't fight it. They can't stop it. They can just try to live as faithfully and honorably to Jesus as they can in the midst of it. And they're having some pastor in the front of some room read this letter to them, but they are not like you and me. You and I have already throughout this series heard probably at least 10 times well, I don't know, a bunch of times, the passage out of Revelation that talks about how Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You, you have heard read to you, one day there will be no more death, there will be no more suffering, but God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. You've heard that. And so you know, even if you've missed a bunch of weeks, that somewhere at the end of the story it ends great. They don't know that. They're, they're listening to this story with all of their stuff in their life, and they're listening to this story, and not story fake, but this, this, this prophecy, these, these words that have come from God, and they're listening to this in real time. And what they've already read to this point and heard in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of, I don't know what's going to happen to my family. I don't know if I'm going to get arrested tomorrow. They would hear this letter that comes from God, and they would have heard that, oh, and by the way, if it's not Nero, and if this is about something way in the future, or a little bit in the future, there's going to come a human leader one day who is going to oppose Jesus and rule the earth. And oh, by the way, right, what that leader is definitely going to do is he is going to try to wipe out every Christian that exists. And oh, by the way, what they will have heard is, and if you choose to worship King Jesus and not that king, you're not going to be able to get any baby formula for your kids. You're not going to be able to get any water. You're not going to be able to get any food. You're not going to be able to buy anything. You're not going to be able to sell anything. Christians showed up on a Sunday morning in a small house somewhere or a small area gathered together who literally were putting themselves at risk for being there and certainly would in the months and the years to come. And they have all sorts of their own pressures and they came that morning to get some hope, to get some encouragement. And what they've heard so far is, oh, by the way, it's just going to keep getting worse. And <clears throat> if I was in that situation... And if you were in that situation, at least I know for myself, man, I'd have a lot of things I was wondering. I would have been wondering a lot of things. I'd have been wondering, man, I've got kids. And, and, and me coming to this room with my family is going to put them at risk? I, wow, I don't like that. I'd been wondering. Well, what am I going to do if I choose not to worship this human leader and I'm not able to buy food or buy anything? And, and I'd be wondering in my own story, right, is it ever going to get any better? Is all of this hardship that we're starting to experience and one day will experience in, in ways we can't comprehend, is there anything better on the other side of that? Or <clears throat> they don't know how the story ends. They could be wondering, is this just the way it's always going to be? Are we always going to be mistreated? 
Are we always going to risk imprisonment? Are our lives literally always going to be on the line if we choose to gather with other Christians? And this isn't good. And so far, what we've read in the story, right, a lot of what we read is, I guess Jesus is just going to let it all keep happening. Those are some of the things that they might have been wondering. I know I would have been wondering it if I were in their shoes back in 90 A.D. And one of the reasons that God in his sovereignty chose to inspire these words to them and to us was to give them and us some hope that will lead to some perseverance. Some hope that will lead to some perseverance. Some hope for them that will give them some courage and something to fix their eyes on down the road so that in the moment in which they find themselves, they will get up dependent upon God, worshiping their king, saying, I am willing to take another step in honor of him because there is hope that this isn't going to last forever. The one thing that's true of all the human story, whether you live in AD 94, whether you live in 2023, whether you do not believe in Jesus or whether you are fully devoted to Jesus, is All of us want hope. All of us yearn for hope. And God is trying to let them know, guys, right? We we talk throughout the book of Revelation how God is giving encouragement, boluses of encouragement. It's like, remember that show Emergency Squad 51? By the way, there's another great show out. It comes on Tuesdays after America's Got Title, Talent, and it's called L.A. County Fire and Rescue. Ooh, They put the reality cameras in with these fires. It's amazing, right? And it reminded me of emergency because they pull out, right? Emergency, Johnny Gage and somebody else. And the best part of that whole movie is when they're about to give somebody a shot of something, they they like flipped the caps off the needles and it went in slow motion. It was amazing. Everybody in EMS since that moment would pull out a needle when they're about to give and they go, right? And they would do that in the show when they're about to give somebody a bolus of something, an extra shot of something. Throughout the book of Revelation, God has been periodically giving us boluses of hope and of encouragement. And what Jesus wants these guys to know who are going through this is, listen, I know it's hard. I know it's not fair. I know you're powerless. I know it's not the story that you wanted. But listen what he's trying to say. You're facing that now, but evil isn't going to have the last word. Evil isn't going to have the last word because Jesus wins. And amidst everything, in their lives, in my life, in our life, that can smother hope, smother hope. You you got a campfire and those embers are there and you take a quilt and you douse it and douse it and douse it with water and then you throw that wet, heavy quilt that, 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 that is laden with water and weighs 40 pounds. You just drop it on those fires and man, it just smothers it. And that's what sometimes happens to hope. That's what sometimes happens to my hope. That's what sometimes happens to your hope. That would sometimes be what happens to their hope. And amidst all the things in their lives and my life and our lives that can smother hope, 
What God wants us to remember and to know is how it ends because that is what can strengthen hope. Evil doesn't have the last word because Jesus wins. Some of you are thinking you should end the sermon right now and sing the last song. I could, but I won't. I mean, you got up, you brushed your teeth, you looked for an umbrella. I want you to get your money's worth. That's why I do what I do. I never want you to feel shortchanged. So, so why does this even matter? He, here's why it matters. Because God does not want us to lose hope, and God gives us reason for hope. Reason for hope. I, I shared this story a, a year, uh, a couple years ago, um, and I'll, I'll share it again because not everybody was here. You may have missed it. And because we have one of the people who actually experienced this running some tech today. But one of the highlights, uh, genuinely, a bunch of highlights here at my time at Calvary. One of them was when I got to, I took, I've taken two missions trips to Brazil with different teams from here. And one was when I jumped in to take a bunch of uh, teens and young adults to Brazil. And I shared this with you before, but one of the things that we had to do in Brazil is we served missionaries who were in the Amazon, and they, they would come out of the Amazon, and they'd be in this uh, kind of retreat center, this compound. And it's in Brazil, and it's hot, and it's rainy. And so some of the dirt roads in that compound would get washed out, and they were gravel. And so you would have to put new gravel down. And so one of our projects on this trip was there was a, a pile of gravel about the size of this room, okay? It genuinely was. There was this, not really, there was this massive pile of gravel. And what we had to do was we had to take the gravel from this place, and we had to carry it over to this place, and then we had to dump this gravel out. Now, I don't know if you've ever spent like 29 hours in a row shoveling gravel, but it gets heavy, it gets tiring. And so my first attempt at this with these these amazing teens and the adults was like, all right, y'all grab the gravel and start shoveling. That was great for about 45 seconds. And then what I noticed was, because I'm smart, I'm observant like this. You know, there were some people who were the gravel shovelers, and then there was somebody else who was the wheelbarrow pusher. The wheelbarrow pusher had the good job, right? Because they just walked up. And so what I did is I did this. Like, I like, okay, we're not going to be able to do this for seven days in a row. So I would give everybody, I, I had three rotations, and everybody did their job for 10 minutes. So for 10 minutes, this is what I set up. You're going to be the graveler shovelers. Then you're going to be the wheelbarrow pushers. And then you know what? You, you just kind of got off. You could be like the supervisor for the next 10 minutes, right? And so we had these kind of three stations, one of which was very easy, one of which was very hard. And the thing was, when they were shoveling the rocks, right, shoveling the gravel, what I kept saying to them was, hey, there's only four more minutes left, and then you're going to switch. There's only two more minutes left, and then you're going to switch. Hey, in 30 seconds... This hard stuff, it's going to be done. And you know what? In that moment for them, knowing that what they were doing wasn't going to last forever allowed them to just keep going for a little longer. And for us, in his sovereignty, what God knows is the same as for us. right? Knowing that what you're experiencing, you will not experience forever because one day it will end. What God knows is, man, somehow that does have the opportunity to fan some flames of hope. And let, let's be honest about this. 
That doesn't mean that everything's going to get better tomorrow. Doesn't mean everything's going to get better in a year. But what is promised is when you see Jesus face to face, it will all be better then. It will all be better then. Here's the first challenge, right? God doesn't want us to lose hope, and he gives us reasons for hope. So fix your hope on the truth that Jesus can overcome your problem now and one day will overcome all problems and pain. One day. Even if that day is when you're standing face to face before him, all problems, all pain, all hardship, all injustice, all evil, gone. Gone. Because Jesus wins in the end. Now, we've read about the battle, so let's kind of press into a little bit about that battle and where it happens and what the deal is. So question number two is where does this happen, okay? Well, we don't know from this text itself where it happens. It doesn't reveal the exact location, but a prior text did. In Revelation 16, we read this, and we didn't talk about it then because we're talking about in Revelation 19. But here is kind of like a preview, like looking down the road to what's being described in our text today. And we see that, for there are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon, okay? Interestingly, this Hebrew word is um, har, H-A-R, dash, Megadel, okay? And we've translated into Armageddon. So where does this happen, right? The answer to that is it happens in a place called Armageddon. Armageddon. And so let's try to figure out, let's have, we have got some photos, right, to try to put a little bit of this in context. You're going to see this in another slide. We'll recap some of this. But um, there, there is no uh, necessarily place known as Armageddon, okay? There is a city uh, known as Megiddo, right? And remember the word means Har Megiddo. There's a city, an ancient city known as that, and there's hills and mountains all around it, but there is no mountain, there is no hill that's known as Megiddo. And so what most scholars think is what's being referenced when it talks about this battle taking place in Har Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, is that it's referring to just kind of this whole region, right? It's referring to the city. It's referring to these mountains that surround it. Um, and this whole kind of area is known as the Jezreel Valley in Israel. And so we got another picture, a couple more pictures to show you guys. Here is um, this mound that was the ancient city of uh, Megiddo, right? So you saw that star. This is the mound that's near it. That's the ancient city. It's built up because cities just kept getting built upon it, built upon it, built upon it. Back behind here are more hills. This is that whole valley region, this whole plains of uh, Megiddo, the Jezreel Valley, this whole wide expanse with some of those more hills behind it. And so again, scholars think when it talks about the mountain of Megiddo, this wasn't necessarily like that back when this was inspired and written, but over time it has. They just kind of think it's this whole big circle of area. And then we have one more picture of it that this is the expanse looking out over it. Then remember, what's interesting about this is somebody who came to Calvary was here a couple months ago. And I showed this to you then, and they, this is their email that they were on a trip, and they took a picture for me um, and sent it. And so we can see where one of our people was actually in this 
location. So a couple of, like, let's just kind of summarize what we've seen and where we've been. Um, like we said, Armageddon probably refers to this hill in the original language of Megiddo. And scholars think since there isn't just one mountain named Mount Megiddo back when this was written, uh, the hills and the valleys around it are what must be in context. There have been a ton of battles already fought in this area. Uh, ton of, this area has been referenced in the Bible before, and some of you may know these stories, some of you may not, but there, back in the day there was a dude named Gideon back in the book of Judges who fought some battles, and one of the huge battles that Gideon fought was in that area in which you saw the photos. Um, uh, there was a, a, a warrior, a leader of Israel, whose name was Deborah, and she was a political leader, religious leader of Israel back in the Old Testament, and she led the Israelites to fight in a battle here. And maybe you've not heard of Gideon, maybe you've not heard of Deborah, maybe you've heard of a dude named Saul, King Saul. King Saul was actually killed in that area. And so when you read the story of King Saul dying in that battle and what happens and the way in which that death happens, that's all happening in that broader area. Napoleon, not Napoleon Dynamite, but Napoleon visited this area. He cruised his troops through there, and this is what he said about it. All the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. There is no place in the world more suited for war than this. Interesting. And then there was a battle, uh, that, that was a battlefield for a site of some wars and some conflicts back during World War II. And so, what happens in this area? Third question, right? What happens in this area? Well, the first thing that we read is that the Antichrist leads an army to fight against Jesus. So where it happens is Armageddon, which we said is that valley and hill region. What happens there, we've read, is that the Antichrist leads an army to fight against King Jesus. Again, we're taking the position, we could be wrong, but we're taking the interpretive position, this describes a future event, that there is some symbolic language, but it is not completely all just spiritualized. That's our interpretation for today. Again, I think it's right, but it might not be right, but that's okay. But under that, what we see, it's described in verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. When we talked about the Antichrist, if you missed the sermon, we said that there's going to be this human leader who's going to emerge, who is going to rally people. He's going to be this leader of this 10-country coalition, which is referenced likely by this kings of the earth peace. And he's going to rule the world. He's going to rule 10 nations for a while. He's going to be the man, right? And what this describes is that when King Jesus comes back to earth, what there is no question about, what is we all agree upon, no matter what our interpretive stance, is that one day King Jesus is going to come back to earth. Like physically, literally touching back on the earth, okay? And what this describes under our interpretation is when Jesus is back to reclaim his territory, this dude, he's going to be like, no way, man. Like, okay, if, I, if you're a human person, a dude now that I see in fleshly kind of, if you're here on earth physically, man, I'm getting my boys and my troops, and it, it's go time. We're, we're going to rally, and we're not going to let you get your kingdom back. We're going to keep you from getting your kingdom back. And... They don't, the, this guy, the kings of the earth, and then 
this guy, these people, Jesus is going to be there somewhere. And under our interpretation, what, what these guys are going to say is, well, we don't, need to, we don't need to surrender. We don't need to stop. We don't need to listen. We don't need to put down our battles. Man, we're, we're going to fight the guy. And we're going to fight the guy because what they'd be thinking is that's to our advantage. That's going to, to fight Jesus is going to somehow end up with us being in a better place than if we would just follow Jesus. This guy, these guys are like, bro, we can take them. We're, we're smarter. We got the technology. We can take them. We're going to take them, right? They think they're wiser. They, th they think they're better. They think that fighting Jesus is a better option than following Jesus. They think that they know better than Jesus. They think they do it their way and not his way is going to lead to the best way. And so they're like, man, we ain't going to follow you. We're going to fight you. And we're going to fight you. Thinking about it, like if Jesus was in this room... I don't think I would fight him. <laughs> right? Do you? All right, let's go, man. Steel cage match. No. I'll be like, oh my gosh, I am so unworthy. Spiritually, God is present in this room. And yet, many of us choose to fight him. Many of us choose to fight him at different moments, in different issues. How many times have we done what they're doing, thinking, well, there's Jesus, but I'm not going to follow him. I'm going to fight him because fighting him is going to lead me to a better place in my life. How many times have I done that? How many times have you done that? And, and what we usually do is it's not like, I'm going to fight Jesus and everything. I'm just going to fight, fight, fight everything. That's not usually what happens. What usually happens is, okay, I'll follow Jesus in these 97% things. Like, I'm good. I'm following him all these things, right? But what usually happens, it's like, but in this one thing, this thing, uh-uh, I'm going to fight him. But 97% but is pretty good, right? The problem is it's usually this 3% that can get us in all sorts of trouble. Throughout the book, people have always fought against King Jesus. There's this, there's this another moment when Jesus appears uh, audibly, and he appears to a guy named Saul, uh, who becomes Paul, who is this amazing church planter and pastor. And what we read in that moment is Jesus is speaking to Saul, and Saul, not King Saul, but the guy who later has a name changed to Paul, and he's on his way to persecute Christians. And so Jesus, in the book of Acts, is talking to him. And in Acts 16, he says these words. Uh, you can keep, oh my goodness, I gave you 26. I gave the wrong reference. Here's what he says in 2614 um, of Acts. 2614. This is what he says. Fascinating about Lydia. The, oh, nope, it's back. Okay, 2614. <laughs> That's good, too. Keep it there. It's not distracting. Uh, Paul's on a journey, and he's talking about how there are a group of them, and it says this. And when we'd fallen to the ground, Acts 26, 14, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? 
Acts 26, 14. Really weird term for us. We're like, what? But in that culture, it would not have been a weird term because in that day, farmers had like these broomsticks with not a broom on the end of it, but a pointy tip, right? It was like a mini little spear thing. And it was slender, right? So this slender, tiny, long pole that was sharp. And what these farmers would do is when they wanted an ox to go in a certain direction, they would take that stick and they would just kind of push it up against the ox and they would just kind of like nudge it, right? They, they just kind of have it there so that if the ox went back the wrong way, they would like hit it and be like, ooh, that didn't feel good. I'll go this way, okay? Not a good parenting technique, but perhaps, perhaps a good farming technique. Well, what sometimes would happen is you would have this stubborn ox, and this ox wouldn't like it. And this ox would be like, bro, don't be trying to tell me what to do. And so then the ox, what they literally would do is they would like kick back against it or they would try to pull against it. But you know what happens when there's a pointy thing here and you go like that to it? It hurts you more. If the thing was there giving you a boundary and you just went in the direction in which it was guiding you, you're not going to feel the pain. But in that culture for that ox, the minute it went boo back or boo, 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 man, at that point, that point would be, it would be it would be choosing to push itself into the point. It would be kicking against the goad and it would cause pain and discomfort because of the choice that it itself was doing. And what God, Jesus, King Jesus in that moment was saying to Paul is, Paul, Saul, what are you doing, bro? Like, I'm trying to lead you in a certain way but you think it's better to fight me as opposed to following me and you're kicking against the goad and so it hurts. But why won't you just follow me? Why are you so insistent on fighting me? I'm sure 97% of you and 97% of us are really working hard to follow Jesus in 97% of our lives. But maybe there's some of us who, man, we got that 3%. We're like, no, nah, I'm not going to follow you. I'm going to fight you. Why? If we really believe what we say, we believe about who Jesus is. If we really believe what we say, we believe about who Jesus is. The king who died for us, who holds everything in his hand, who is keeping things from falling apart, who is coming back for us, who knows what is going to happen to you at 1015 tonight and what is going to happen to you on October 15th of 2029. Why don't we just follow him? Why do we think there's an advantage to fighting him? And some of us, we're feeling the goads. Because we're choosing not to go in the direction in which our risen king is leading us, but we want to go where we want, so we're, oh, my way, my way, my way. Here's challenge number two. Are you fighting Jesus or are you following Jesus? Are you fighting Jesus or are you following Jesus? And how does it end? See, this, this is a... This is a dismal story, but the point of this is not to bring dismality. The point of this is to bring hope that what's revealed here doesn't have to be our story, right? And what's revealed here is that we're no longer victims of evil. And man, God blesses us and there's encouragement and there's wonderful things to come. But what about those people who say, nope, I'm just going to fight them. 
in this, story, in this moment in history, what happens to these people who in this battle, in this conflict, choose to fight against Jesus? Well, we see in verse uh, 19 and 20, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered, and the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who is in his... Uh, and with him the false prophet who was in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in a lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Interestingly, if you press into this, um, it, it seems that there really isn't that much of a battle. Right? There is this idea that's woven here because it just, it just boom. It's just like the dudes were going to fight Jesus, like dudes are about to fight Jesus, and it's like bad guy captured. Boom. Right? There's no like battle scene. And what most scholars think is King Jesus is like, bro, don't do it. Don't do it. And then what most scholars think because of that language of a sword that comes from mouth, you know what they think? Jesus just speaks. Jesus just speaks. The same God who spoke the world into existence is the same God who is able to redeem the world from evil by speaking. And with a word, what many scholars think is that the next thing that happens in this story is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here as we move into our final song. The second thing that happens is Jesus wings. And so here's the third challenge for us this morning. Remember that Jesus will not fail. Jesus doesn't fail in this particular battle. And the fact that Jesus doesn't fail means this. Jesus won't fail you. Jesus won't fail I have no idea what you're going through this morning. I do know that there's uh, one verse that talks about hope deferred makes the heart sick. And maybe some of you this morning, you're feeling downtrodden, you're feeling blue, and you're just in a hard spot because you have hope for something, but man, you're not experiencing this moment, and what you long for is deferred, and you're in that spot. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but there's another verse that talks about in the book of Joshua how not one single promises of the Lord failed because every promise came true. And you and I live in that tension of hope deferred, but yet knowing that Jesus will never fail. I, I don't know what you're going through, but he does. And he knows why you're here this morning. And God is a God who gives hope in order to prompt us to persevere. And if many times you could symbol, you know, sum up the Bible in one word and how we do with these tensions of deferred hope but Jesus never fails, it's this idea of keep pressing on. Keep pressing on. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit. Get up and take the next step. Knowing one day you're going to see Him. We're going to end with a song that we've sung before, Hymn of Heaven. In many ways, this has become a repeated theme, right? Because we need to remind ourselves of what that hope is going to be like. We need to sing to ourselves. We need to affirm to God. And as a body, we got to hear each other singing for us when we can't sing ourselves. 
when we don't know if these words are true, we need brothers and sisters in Jesus around us singing to us and with us to help propel and puff up and flame hope within us. And so I'm going to ask you to stand up and the worship team is going to lead us as we end our time singing and affirming and encouraging one another with what one day we'll experience.